0: Milosevic. As a youth, Mr. Milosevic was a pudgy loner. (laughs) See, now being a loner, in the American political lexicon, this is obvious evidence of psychopathology and... (laughs) You're an assassin, obviously, you know. Lee Harvey Oswald was a loner. He may have been a loner, he was no assassin. Um, Timothy McVeigh, the kid who shot Ronald Reagan what was named Hinkley. Hinkle, I forget. A loner. They all call it a loner. Oh, they were loners. They all have friends and family, but they call it a loner. It's a loner, that's for sure. Oh. But Milosevic, you know, was a very specially serious case because he was a pudgy loner. Yeah. See, now, 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 pudginess is un-American. I mean, I don't think so. I, I, I kind of, I think pudginess isn't bad at all, but pudginess is un-American. Now, if Milosevic, though, if he was a lean loner, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be even, that would be bad, too. So it's best not to be either pudgy or lean. <clears throat> and let me take it, let me take, give you the read this whole quote to so you, take it from the top again. As a youth, Mr. Milosevic was a pudgy loner. That's two strikes, pudgy loner. Who shunned sports, strike three. <laughs> and wrote poetry, strike four. Oh, mommy, strike four. <laughs> Does anyone need any further proof that here was a psychotic killer nerd? <laughs> the Times goes on. Today, Milosevic is often described in Serbian profiles as reclusive and moody. His, his country's being bombed into the ground. He's moody. <laughs> With few friends, Yeah, a lot of them are dead. Uh, though in public appearances and interviews, he can be as effusive and happy as a door to door salesman. Fascinating, isn't that fascinating? So we have an effusive, reclusive salesman type. Even the managing editor of Foreign Affairs, the most establishment of journals we have, the managing editor notes, quote, Milosevic, who rules an impoverished country that has not attacked its neighbors, is no Adolf Hitler. He is not even Saddam Hussein. And it's pretty bad when Foreign Affairs starts sounding good, you know? <laughs> it really makes you realize where your own meat where, our media, our, our media. They're not our media, where their media really are at. Well, some people argue, look, it's not a claim a case of class or international interventionist issues. It's nationalism. These ancient ethnic enmities. That's what it really is all about. Well, that presumes that class and ethnicity are mutually exclusive uh, and competitive forces. It's gotta be either one or the other. Not at all. Ethnic enmity can be enlisted to serve class interests. The CIA tried to do that with the Hmong people in Vietnam to divide with the mosquito Indians in Nicaragua. And elsewhere, the CIA did that in Bosnia. Don't take my word for it that the CIA was in Bosnia. Check the headlines. Manchester London Guardian, November 1794. CIA agents training Bosnian army. The, uh, the London Observer, November 20. America's secret Bosnia agenda. The European, November 25. How the CIA helps Bosnia fight back. Generally, ladies and gentlemen, when different national groups are living in a society where there's some measure of hope, security, and prosperity, they tend to get along. There may be ruffles and differences and and turf scuffles and the like, but there's a lot of intermingling. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot there's even a lot of intermarriage, as was going on in Yugoslavia, and. Um, even in Croatia, in Croatia where you could say the northwest part was overwhelmingly Croatian, the southeast part was, was Serbian. Even there, there, was, there, was, there, were, there were lots of Croatians living in the south, lots of Serbians in the north. Bosnia-Herzegovina, Bosnia-Herzegovina was totally intermingled. That, all, that idea of partitioning Bosnia into these three parts was a totally artificial thing imposed. If you look, Michel has a has a map of the ethnic distributions in Bosnia. I mean, they forcibly extract people block by block. They were so intermingled. When things are going okay, when things start going bad, when you've got got sanctions, when you've got the loss of trade credits, when you've got 70% unemployment, when things are beginning to unravel and, and get desperate, that's when people begin to want to jump ship. And when you've got a U.S. national security state backing the most divisive, militant, fascistic national elements... With fascist organizations arising in Yugoslavia that hadn't been seen in 45 years armed with guns and money and organization and hired thugs and operating with the blatant assurance that they had the whole might of the U.S. to their backs. That's when the divisions come and you got a U.S. government that is actually positing, pushing for civil war. And that economic decline and all that uh, activated it. And what was the outcome? The outcome is that in Croatia, you now have the Republic of Croatia with President Tuzmin, a Nazi sympathizer, who wrote a book saying the Holocaust wasn't all that bad and most of it never really happened. Tuzmin, whose flag is the Czech Ustasi flag, which was the Nazi collaborators in World War II, whose army salutes with a straight arm Nazi salute today, Tushman, who suppressed the more liberal Croatian groups that wanted conciliatory policies with the Serbs. Tushman, who presided over the forced evacuation of 600,000 Serbs from Croatia between 91 and 95. I don't see the media or the White House giving much indignant play to that one. Tushman, who lives in obscene wealth along with his cronies while the people of Croatia now wallow in economic misery. In Croatia, it's five years in prison if you criticize the president. But I don't hear Clinton talking about the need to bomb Croatia back into democracy. Then there's Bosnia, where the US has supported the Muslim fundamentalist Izet Begovic. Izet Begovic, who was with the Waffen S.A. when he was younger, in World War II. A Nazi, not a collaborator, not a sympathizer, but an active Nazi. And who today now is the president of Bosnia. And hailed as a, as a democratic leader who wants to establish a religious Islamic Republic in Bosnia. Who suppressed more liberal Muslim leaders. Bosnia is now under IMF and NATO Regency. It's not permitted to mobilize and develop its own internal resources. It's not allowed to extend credit or self-finance through an independent monetary system. Its state-owned assets including energy, water, telecommunications, media and transportation are all being sold off to private corporate investors at garage sale prices. And the Serbian part of Bosnia, was just last year democratically elected a president who was against the free market reforms, was removed forcibly by NATO troops because he was thought to be against, uh, because he was thought to be a hardliner, is the code word used there. NATO is in violation of its own charter, which says that it can take military action only against Aggression that's been committed against one of its one of its members. Yugoslavia has attacked no NATO member <clears throat> What gives the what gives these US leaders the right to intervene? What gives them the right I hear I hear my fellow Americans I hear my some of my progressive friends Sounding like little Colonel blimps little imperialist. Well, we've got to do something. We oh we got to do something really? And the African nations, what if four or five African nations formed an alliance and decided that they didn't like 300 years of slavery for their people and lynch mob, uh, Jim Crow segregation, another hundred years of that and, and police brutality now. What if they decided to invade the U.S.? What if they had the power and the technology to do that and say, we don't like the way you've been treating the African minority in the U.S.? Well, We wouldn't think that that would be the normal course and they'd had an innate right, but there's this arrogance of power here that we, we, says the little fly on the chariot wheel, we are kicking up such a great dust. We, you're getting puffed up. That's what, that's gotta stop this talking we. It's they that are doing it. We are against it. U.S. leaders have actually abandoned any kind of traditional diplomacy. You know, traditional diplomacy is a process of give and take. In traditional diplomacy, you have a proposal, a counter-proposal. You may pull back your ambassador to show your negotiators, to show you displeased that it's not working. You come back, you bluster, you bluff, you uh, harangue, you make a new set of proposals, you bring in more mediation, you reach maybe even for your sword, but you never pull it from the scabbard. You come away finally with a solution, which might leave both sides satisfied. One side perhaps more dissatisfied than the other, but never to the point of Being forced to war. That's what traditional diplomacy was about. It was this way of trying to stop conflicts short of war. U.S. diplomacy is something else. U.S. diplomacy makes traditional diplomacy really look good. The goal, as it was done in Vietnam, as it was done against Nicaragua, as it was done against Iraq, as it's done against Yugoslavia, the method is to issue a set of demands. The demands are treated as non-negotiable. This is what you're going to have to do. Although to the American people and in the media, they're called accords. They're called agreements as the Rambouillet agreements. Those weren't agreements, those were ultimatums. And by the way, Milosevic accepted every one of the Rambouillet agreements except one. The one which said that foreign troops could come in and occupy all of Kosovo, and then there was a hidden subsection, which not many people knew about, which which said, and they would have the right to move into any part of Yugoslavia anywhere else at any time at their own discretion. It was a total surrender to a foreign occupation, and this was the unacceptable thing. The other side's resistance or even hesitancy in accepting these U.S. Offers and proposals and agreements and accords. The other side's hesitancy is treated as an unwillingness to negotiate in good faith. It's announced that U.S. leaders are running out of patience. It's announced that the other side is stonewalling and snubbing these offers that we're making. And so U.S. leaders finally have no other recourse. Having shown almost a a a, a Christ-like patience, they now they now have to have nothing left that they can do but bomb this other country and start killing large numbers of its men, women, and children. And, and as, as Bill Clinton says, you can blame all those deaths on Milosevic. That's yes, right, he's, 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 the, he's the cause of it all. If he did exactly what we said when he was supposed to, this wouldn't have happened. And the side that resists and is hesitant is labeled as war criminals. Let me read to you. I'm winding it down, but let me just, two more things I want to say. A few more things. Let me just read to you a statement that I got on the internet from a woman who is a member of the Greens party in Belgrade. This is what she writes about the bombing. Now, this is already a month old. It's gotten much worse. Serbia is one of the greatest sources of underground waters in Europe. And the contamination from US explosives and depleted uranium will be felt in the whole surrounding area all the way to the Black Sea. NATO is bombing factories. The workers in the greater part of our great industrial complexes have decided to make a living wall around their working places. They're doing this not only to defend their country, but because they have become so impoverished by the years of sanctions that the destruction of factories would mean condemnation to a poverty equal to death. In other words, the, these workers are trying to defend the only thing they have left, which is their social capital, the factories. NATO chooses extremely dangerous targets, emi- and, and then she goes on about nuclear reactors, uh, nuclear waste storage places that have been uh, that have been getting close to being hit, um, petrochemical factories where the fumes are escaping, artificial fertilizers, the municipality of Baric, has also been hit with the great complex for the production of chloride, which is using Bhopal technology. You remember what happened in Bhopal, 4,000 people died horrible deaths, respiration, in Bhopal, India, um, <clears throat> from that industrial accident. It's not necessary for me to explain what the blowing up of one of such factories represents. Not only Belgrade, which is situated 10 kilometers distance, would, could, would be endangered, but the rest of Europe too. On the second day in the Belgrade suburbs, a factory for the chemical production and a rocket fuel storage was hit, causing uh, intoxication of the entire surrounding area. Four national parks were hit, all members of the International Association of the National Reservations. You have to realize that Yugoslavia is among 13 of the world's richest biodiversity countries. And then she goes on to talk about the different cultural places. It has one of the richest film archives in the world that's been destroyed. Uh, medieval orthodox churches, monasteries, which are centuries old, and uh, candidates for UNESCO heritage lists have been hit, and so forth and so on. And then she goes on to describe the terrible effect on children, uh, elderly people, and all. Besides the actual killings, a lot of people are dying because they simply, uh, uh, there's a, you know, the normal patterns of life and life support systems are being destroyed. When you hit, you might see it in the paper, NATO is boasting that they're hitting the electricity systems in Yugoslavia. When you hit electricity, you are committing an act of chemical warfare because the electricity systems are the only way you get water in any, any modern developed society. You need electricity to get water to you. If you don't have water, people need water to live. They need it to drink, they need it for cooking, they need it for cleaning themselves, they need it for waste disposal. With the warm weather coming up, and you wouldn't believe it here in Seattle, but with the warm weather coming up, um, there will be typhoid and typhus and and this kind of stuff will break out. That's what's happening in Iraq. That's why people were dying there. You see, there's two kinds of bombings that are going on. There's a saturation bombing or carpet bombing. World War II, we used to call it saturation bombing. Carpet bombing was just killing people, but there is surgical strikes also. They are targeting these things. They're targeting, they've learned in Iraq, they learned it very well, that you can destroy the life support systems of the society. And when you do that, you make war, total war, upon the, the, the population. And that is what is happening. She goes on to say... I am deeply convinced that I am speaking in the name of all the citizens of Yugoslavia when I say that we have the capabilities and the political will to find a solution for the Kosovo problem. If we are allowed to seek the solution together with the Albanians and if we take into consideration the fact that all of us have the right to participate in this solution. All one-sidedness and media manipulation are part of the mechanism bringing suffering, destruction and death. By the way, there's 100,000 Albanians living in Belgrade. In Belgrade themselves. They have their own stores in Albania and all that sort of thing, and they're getting hit too. I want to read one other thing. This was written by Tom Watson. Anybody know who Tom Watson was? A hundred years ago he wrote this in 1898. Tom Watson was an American populist. He was governor of Georgia and a U.S. senator elected on the populist ticket. To fight the Democratic and Republican monopoly of that day. And what was happening was William McKinley was very craftily drawing the American people into the Spanish-American War. McKinley said, we've got to go in, and the newspapers all said, we've got to go in to rescue the Cubans against whom the Spaniards are, are, are committing some of the worst horrible atrocities that you can imagine. And by the way, the Spaniards were no angels in Cuba. But most of those atrocity stories were coming out of the febrile, fertile imaginations of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst and put into the penny press. And also coming out of US Congress too. And by the way, that's the same thing I'm saying here about Yugoslavia. To say that these atrocities are contrivances for the most part and propaganda is not to say that Milosevic and the Serbs are blameless and that they're angels. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that we have to even be fans of any one side. Regardless of what you think of those people certainly you can see that this bombing is a horrible thing now watson understood that this war was not in the interests of the american people and he wrote this way who gets the benefit of the war the spanish american war he's talking about the bond seekers the capitalists the railroads national bankers will profit by this war The new bonds give them the basis for new banks and their power is prolonged. Munition makers will profit by this war. The privileged classes all profit by this war. It takes the attention of the people off economic issues and perpetuates the unjust system they have put upon us. Politicians profit by the war. It buries issues they dare not meet. What do the people get out of this war? The fighting and the taxes. What is the United States doing in this war with Spain in the first place? True, Spain is oppressing Cuba, but so is England oppressing Ireland, Egypt, and India. France is oppressing Siam and Madagascar. Turkey is oppressing Armenia. Should we then take up arms against the oppressors of the world? We would more likely end up by becoming oppressors ourselves. The Spaniards and Cubans were bushwhacking one another and killing from three to five men at a battle. We have gone down there and killed more people in three months than they would have killed in 13 years. If they were starving before, who feeds them now? What are we going to get out of this war as a nation? Endless trouble, complications, expense, Republics cannot go into the conquering business and remain republics. Militarism leads to military domination, military despotism. Imperialism smooths the way for the emperor. And that's what you got. When you have a president, when you have a president who's in violation of the NATO charter, who's in violation of the UN charter, who's in violation of the War Powers Act, and who's in violation of the US Constitution, where the the founders of the Constitution said that you cannot leave this decision of war to only one man. And if you leave it to the president, you no longer have a president, you no longer have a republic, you have an emperor, you have a king. If he can commit a whole nation to war and killing just by his own personal judgment, that's not a democracy. And they said there's got to be a debate and there's got to be accountability. I remember during the Iraq war, a student said to me, well, that's where you and I differ, you see, because I have faith in the president. He was talking about George Bush. I said, excuse me, you have faith in the president? He said, I trust the president. I have faith in him. So I said, what does that mean? You have faith in the president? This isn't religion. I mean, you have faith in him the way my Italian grandma had faith in St. Anthony? Do you have a picture of George Bush on your bureau? You light little candles to him, do you? <laughs> you trust? You trust your president? I mean the way trust meaning you give a certain, your destiny or portion of your destiny to someone unquestioningly as you might to very close loved ones or close relatives? And even them, check them out once in a while, right? <laughs> No, democracy isn't about faith, it isn't about trust, it's about distrust. It's about accountability, it's about challenge. it's about debate, it's about exposure. It's about people becoming the active agents of their own lives, wanting to know what's going on. I don't have to trust you, I don't want to trust you, I want to see what's going on. Whose interests do you really represent, my friends? And we hear, we hear people say, including some of our progressive friends, our liberal friends, yes, I, oh, I know the bombings don't work. Oh, I, I'm not supporting those bombings. The bombings are stupid. I know, but we've got to do something. Well, the bombings aren't stupid. They're profoundly immoral. The, the, Serbian, the Serbian army, which is expelling, ex- expelling people, by the way, m- many of those people are fleeing the bombings. If you read those accounts closely, you'll find a lot of these people are saying, we're fleeing the bombings. 50,000 Serbs have fled from Kosovo in the last three months. Are the Serbs ethnically cleansing themselves? The bombings do work. The bombings are working. They know what they're doing. Just because you don't know what they're doing doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. Of course they know what they're doing. The bombings are achieving what they're supposed to, which is to destroy Yugoslavia, to turn it into a de-industrialized beggar-poor nation of cheap labor, completely defensive to the interests of capital investors. This is a batterist policy. The batterer is not irrational. The batterer uses violence against his helpless spouse. He uses just a certain amount of level to get a certain response and batters that person down and batters the person down. And that's what this is. It's a battering policy to destroy and smash them down, but smash them and splinter them so badly that they will never rise again and never come back again, even uh, even as a viable bourgeois nation, let alone socialist. The old arguments we hear with regard to Vietnam are coming back. Well, we can't just pull out. Oh, yes, we can. We can. We can do it with two words. You can pull out with just two words it calls cease fire and then another two words, NATO disband. Right. And yes, we, we, the real we, we we really do have to do something called the White House. Call your Congress people, your media, talk back, demonstrate, organize, agitate, educate yourself and others. Let them know how you feel. Don't think they're not interested, my friends. Oh man, are they interested in that? Oh man, do you think they are not watching you all the time? Why do you think guys like me are under surveillance? I mean, I'm not kidding you. When I pick up my, when the phone rings and I pick it up and someone starts talking to me, mimicking in a mocking tone a conversation I just had on the phone two hours ago with someone else, then then you're moving from surveillance to harassment. But they let me know that I'm under surveillance. But it's not just just people who are super active and all. They wanna know what the general public is thinking. They never stop thinking about you. When you say, oh, they don't care what we're thinking. Oh, no, they always, always focus on you because they know they're standing on your shoulders. And if this great mass began to shrug and rumble and all that sort of thing, it gets very wobbly up there. So against the lies. Against the lies and the homicidal violence of this national security aberration, the thin, frail voice of reason and democracy can become a mighty chorus and a strong resistance. I have seen it happen before, and we can make it happen again. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.